Slate Plus members, it's survey time again, which means it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate in general. It'll only take a few minutes and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Alexis Coe, a historian and the New York Times bestselling author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. She was a producer on Doris Kearns Goodwin's Washington series on the History Channel and is also a producer on the film adaptation of her first book, Alice and Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis. Alexis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming in hot and letting us know where you stand on the a historian versus an historian divide. Yeah, I just felt like we needed to get it out there. Let's get it out there. You know, you're strictly on a 20th century Americanist pronunciation kick, and that's as it should be. I'm not afraid to take those kinds of bold stances in the world of history. I'm very, very happy to hear that. Uh, I'm excited to bring... I think a historical perspective, especially to our first letter, which, boy, oh boy, does that tap into a uh, rich historical vein. It, it made me real mad. And uh, you're just, by, by the way, listeners, you can't see this. Alexis just started covering her mouth as soon as I brought up our first letter and has not stopped, which is right about where I'm at. Yeah, it's it's a lot. I mean, a bunch of Victorian novels come to mind, and then we can go all the way up through American history. I thought a lot about um, JFK's sister, Rosemary. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, it it bummed me out. Yeah, yeah, it was somebody apparently sort of independently in, arriving at, you know, a eugenics policy of sterilization, seemingly uh, in a vacuum, which is yes. um, never great. I mean, obviously not in a vacuum, right? Uh, (laughs) Never great. I'll just start by reading it, shall I? Yes. The subject is forced contraception. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have a 19-year-old daughter, Emma. Emma is moderately intellectually and developmentally delayed. She requires frequent redirection and careful supervision. If she cooks, she'll forget to turn the stove off, even if you remind her 30 times. Her sister asked her to watch her seven-month-old for 10 minutes while she took a shower, and Emma left the baby on the floor and went to another room to watch TV. Thankfully, the baby was fine. She will probably live with us or in a care facility for the rest of her life. Over the last two years, I've noticed she's become increasingly interested in sex and dating, almost to an uncomfortable degree. We had the talk with her years ago with reminders in between, but I really don't know if she can legally consent to sex. Even though she has the mind of an eight-year-old, she still has the body and hormones of a young woman. I'm not really sure how to handle this. Do I put her on birth control? It would have to be something permanent since she'd never take a pill every day, but Emma has expressed a desire to have a baby. So I don't think she'd allow any sort of implant, and I'm uncomfortable lying to her about what it would be. On the other hand, there's no way she can care for a child, and my husband and I just don't have the resources to care for another child. 
She goes to a school program for delayed young adults, and her teachers have mentioned that she has been trying to kiss people and go even further. She also propositioned her cousin last Christmas, who politely declined and immediately made me aware of the situation. How do we handle this? My husband is completely in denial, and I'm worried that Emma will end up pregnant or someone will take advantage of her. I want to start by saying I'm glad you don't want anyone to take advantage of Emma. I think that sterilizing her without her consent or knowledge would qualify as taking advantage of her. So a good place to start is to pay attention to the part of you that says, gee, sterilizing my daughter and lying to her about it would make me uncomfortable. It should. It's also eugenics. It's also illegal. Don't do it. Alexis, is there a history of forced sterilization in the United States that might be useful context here? Sorry, I don't yeah. sound like I'm on Sesame Street asking you to explain the letter K to us, but I- I'm trying to rein in some some bigger affects here. I mean, that was the interesting part of this um, of this letter. It, as you pointed out, you know, we understand that the parents mean well, that they have a child who they will be taking care of their entire lives. Um, And surely they worry about what will happen after. They list all the ways in which this has, you know, the the evidence they have. But what was striking to me is the letter otherwise sounds like they're operating in a time period where people don't understand or have no um, access to literature or experts on this. And the only option is sterilization or a lobotomy. Sterilization happened to women all the time without their consent. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, she went in to be treated for, I think, um, you know, a fairly small procedure and without her consent. I can't even begin. It is, and it, it is illegal for a reason. Um, and then, of course, Rosemary Kennedy, and I say of course because my next book is on JFK and Danny is aware of, um, I sneak in a lot of like presidential history into conversations all the time. And this is JFK's sister who, in order to, you know, from birth had issues and then had this exact trajectory. Her parents explained that she was becoming sort of like hypersexualized and they were worried about that. Um, and then Joe Kennedy, without consenting Rosemary or his wife, had Rosemary lobotomized, and it left her far worse off. Um, so I would suggest that they they talk to people at the school, that they talk to other experts, and surely there is a a better way. I mean, I'm not sure how to handle it means seek out all the information you can. Right, right. It makes sense that you wouldn't know how to handle all of this. It makes sense that you would feel uncomfortable. That's not the problem. Going from that to my husband's in denial, should we just get an IUD thrown into her and not tell her what it is? That's the part where you need to slam on every single break in the world and really invite expertise, help, familiarize yourself with the history of forced sterilization Uh, in the United States, especially on people with intellectual disabilities. I understand your desire not to have her being taken advantage of, but I think it's really important to separate that from the part of you that also just doesn't want to be uncomfortable. You know, the the letter writer says she's really interested in sex and dating. Well, she's 19. That makes sense to me. Um, Almost to an uncomfortable degree. Okay. 
you know, you can set some rules and limits in place such that you can do your best to make sure that people aren't taking advantage of her. Um, what you can't and shouldn't do, I think, is say the discomfort that I feel when my daughter talks about sex and dating, perhaps without the sort of filter that I myself have, that's a problem that's serious enough that I want to put a stop on that. First of all, sterilization would not stop that interest. Second of all, even if it did, that wouldn't make it okay. So, you know, the fact that her teachers, for example, have just been letting her, letting you know that she tries to kiss people, good that they're letting you know about that. Um, ask them what they're doing about it. You know, is she distressing these other kids? Uh, is she upsetting them? Is she pushing boundaries? Do you need to have more conversations with her about other people's autonomy? Uh, you know, you, 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 then you, you have that talk. With you, you, you say you had the talk with her with some reminders in between. Great. You're probably going to have the talk with her about not kissing other people without consent a lot. Start having that conversation a lot. You know, you say that sometimes if she's cooking, if I'm supervising her, I have to remind her 30 times. And, and I, I think that, you know, there's, there's no part of you that thinks, should I make it so that she can never be near a stove? That's not something where you want to remove her ability to access something. It's the sex stuff that I think makes you so uncomfortable that you want to put that barrier in between her and sex rather than having uncomfortable conversations or thinking about sex, um, which makes you uncomfortable. Absolutely. I think you're totally right. The last um, half of this, the last sentence really struck me because she's talking about birth control, but then she ends and she fairly frequently suggests that someone will take advantage of her. Birth control will not preclude that. Um, so, so again, we come back to this this problem. She's avoiding the fundamental problem. And I also think, you know, there are whenever I see someone in the archives say, "I am protecting this person. I am looking out for them," and I have some sort of um, they have lost autonomy to me, or you know, I own them, or whatever it is, depending on the era. It's it's really a moment to um, turn the tables and to interrogate yourself um, on, on what you're really protecting them from and how you're doing it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and to really separate out what are things that make me uncomfortable versus what are things that might put her at risk. Because those are two really different things. If she can understand what sex is, if she can demonstrate an interest in kissing other people, uh, that suggests to me that there are potentially uh, circumstances under which she could consent to sex. And you will need to think about that as her parent and one of her caregivers. Um, and that might not feel immediately and intuitively comfortable or easy. And I don't expect that it will feel those ways. So you don't have to be angry with yourself for not immediately feeling comfortable. Um, but I do think that you should seek out expert knowledge and and lots and lots of writing on the subject that really, you know, looks through like a disability justice model and that really prioritizes autonomy and consent in the context of, you know, centuries of institutionalization and forcible sterilization for people with intellectual disabilities. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It seems like the only and best solution. Yeah. And, and, and I say all of that, of, of course, if you and your husband can't take care of another child, I understand that. I, I don't in any way want to fault you and say like, well, you should just be ready to do that. Um, these are all conversations you can have with your husband, even if he wants to be in denial about it, you know, push for it, seek out a couples counselor, um, make this a priority to discuss. Um, but this is not something that you can push away. And this is not something that you can bury by saying, I'm uncomfortable that my 19 year old daughter 
is both interested in sex and is intellectually disabled. I'd rather she weren't. And so I kind of want to see if I can sterilize her to stop wanting that. That is wrong. It's eugenicist. It's, uh, it's not good. Don't pursue that line of thinking. Absolutely. Yes, this is a good, I mean, yes, that's a good takeaway. But I mean, there was also this, this feeling as though she's like, oh, there's, this is a new thing. Here's another thing to add to it. And it's like, well, if you have to remind her to turn off the stove 30 times, you're going to, as you said, you're going to have to have this conversation a lot. Yeah. And, and you seem prepared to do it about the stove. So I think you should, you have that capacity within you. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the last thing I'll say here, because I, 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 I feel very fired up, you know, the, the letter writer describes a couple of different events, right? Like one of them was her sister once asked her to watch her seven-month-old for 10 minutes. It didn't go well. I'm really glad the baby was okay. I hope your sister learned that, I'm sorry, that Emma's sister learned that that's not a position that she should put Emma in. I think everybody in your family, whoever spends time with Emma, should be made aware. You can't ask Emma to supervise something by herself that's putting her in a position where she's not going to be okay. So she, you know, she should not have done that. Um, come up with different plans for taking showers. You know, the fact that the school called you to, to let you know that she was trying to kiss the other students but isn't trying to pathologize her interest in sex and romance, that seems good too. Uh, the fact that her cousin told you, you know, right away, hey, Emma propositioned me, I turned her down, just wanted to let you know. Again, that's a good outcome. I, I get that it was uncomfortable. I get that that was not what you hoped would happen at Christmas. But everyone acted well there, you know? The cousin said, no, thank you, and let you know. And it sounds like you were able to redirect or refocus the conversation. That's good. I, I am sorry that that happened. It is uncomfortable, but the answer to that is not, hey, is there some kind of surgical procedure that can get rid of Emma's desires when they freak me out? Um, it's, it's coming up with plans. It's coming up with safety plans. It's coming up with consensus so that there's scripts and that people in your family know how to handle uncomfortable situations. And that Emma can have what she wants out of life. There is some opportunity for her to find love and to have a physical relationship that's safe for everyone. It would be wonderful. Yeah, if there are peers at her school who want to kiss her back and there are ways that, you know, not without just like completely removing all safeguards, but also without, you know, hovering over and micromanaging every aspect of that interaction that she can go on that date or they can kiss. That would be really good. That sounds like that's something Emma wants. Don't take that from her. Don't take that opportunity from her. Would you read our next letter? Yes. The subject line is just trying to help. Dear Prudence, I am currently with a great woman who I love very much. We connect on every level and I treasure every moment we have together. We're just a little more than a year together and I can see myself spending the rest of my life with her. We are so close and she shared with me something she has never spoken to anyone about. The fact that she was sexually abused by her father and in unrelated incidents raped twice by extended family members when she was 10. I am honored she felt safe enough to share this with me and really proud of her for starting counseling. I'm reading everything I can to support her through this as best I can. The act of acknowledging this abuse to me and her counselor appears to have unlocked a lot of rage, fear, and often obsessive and manic behavior. 
These episodes come about once every nine days and dominate her behavior for about two to 14 hours. Think getting super angry and coming up with weak and often bizarre arguments that seem designed to push away the people she loves. It's like she becomes an entirely different person. She can be very verbally abusive during these episodes. What she says could easily be something she is trying to say to her abusers, particularly her still-living father. Oh, that part broke my heart. My question is about her 11-year-old daughter, Lily. Lily is often present during these episodes. She's a smart kid, loves her mom, and is clearly trying to understand her behavior. Lily is very smart and wise beyond her years. I feel like knowing what happened to her mother might help her understand why her mother sometimes acts the way that she does. Is there a right way to let a child of that age know her parent is a survivor of sexual abuse? Or is it something that shouldn't be discussed, if ever, until she reaches a specific age? What's missing for me here is the mom's opinion on telling Lily. Yeah, I I think the thing that troubles me the most about this one, or I I think that I want to redirect the most, is the letter writer says, this woman's amazing. She also has something very troubling going on that causes her to verbally abuse her child. I want to explain to her child why her mom is verbally abusing her. And the sort of implication there is Lily is really smart, really wise beyond her years. Is that a good reason to treat her like an adult instead of a child in need? And to put the burden of understanding and contextualizing and excusing her mother's abuse onto her rather than, I love this woman. I sympathize with her suffering. So I don't want to address her abusiveness because I want to think of her solely as a victim and not as a causer of harm. But letter writer, I I think right now you need to take some of that empathy that you are saving for your girlfriend and you need to direct it at Lily, who is 11 years old, who is not responsible for the abuse that her mother suffered, who does not deserve to be abused in turn. It, It is not a necessary function of going into therapy to deal with your own childhood abuse, that there's some phase you go through where you then start to abuse your own kid. So to me, there's way too much context here already. The issue is not, how do I make Lily understand? The issue is, how can I talk to my partner about the fact that she is abusing her child? Absolutely. I mean, Lily, it's repeated twice that she's smart. She's smart. She's wise beyond her years. That doesn't matter. There's this idea that, you know, just because someone is capable, it doesn't mean that you you give them so much. You give them more than you would someone else of the same age, the same, you know. And I understand, again, that this is like, there are good intentions here. He wants to support Lily, but he automatically assumes that the way to support her in this is to tell her what's going on. And there are other ways that, again, experts can can help figure out. This sounds like family therapy. It sounds like Lily should be in therapy. Um, and this this behavior, these outbursts should be assessed by a professional. Yeah. Yeah. So just letter writer, I want to be really clear I think your intentions are very good. It's clear that you love your girlfriend. It's clear that her suffering from her own childhood abuse is real and serious. But the question you're asking is, I've seen my girlfriend abuse her child. I'm wondering if I should tell the child about her mother's own childhood abuse so that this child is more patient and understanding about being abused herself. And I just want you to you know, sit with that sentence for a minute and think, do I really want to do that? Is that really a good goal? 
And I think you will feel pretty quickly, no, that's the wrong road to go down. So the road that you do need to go down, I'm afraid, is to talk to your partner, to make it really clear. Not that she's like being a little messy around the edges or that you know she's going through a really hard time, but you need to say, I've seen you verbally abusing your daughter. It needs to stop. It needs to stop now. And we need to talk to other people about this, including your therapist. Absolutely. And and even if it's not, you know, Lily, he very specifically says Lily is often present during these episodes. We, you know, we have to assume that, yes, she is on, she has been on the receiving end, certainly. But I also, like, it doesn't matter if you witness this as an 11-year-old, that is a, that over and over again with this sort of frequency that he's implying, that's traumatic. Right. And you're right. Thank you for pointing that out. It, it is unclear whether Lily is always the the victim of these tirades, whether she sometimes is, whether she's usually the bystander and he is the subject. I found that lack of information interesting. It seemed intentional. My my gut assumption there was that the letter writer wanted to leave that vague because he didn't want to admit she's verbally abusing her child. But that's just a gut uh, response. It's it, possible that it's him. So either way, her 11-year-old should not be... have. It's abusive for her 11-year-old to be subject to that, whether it's happening to the other adult in the room or to her. She is not equipped to deal with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what you need to say. I think it would be wise to say it at a time and a place where you know that you have emotional backup of your own. I think you should be looking for a therapist of your own as well. Um, I think you should talk to probably not a relative of your girlfriend because it sounds like her family is pretty abusive. Um, But if you have any mutual friends or if you are at all close with any of her mutual friends, with her friends, I get that it's not going to be comfortable. No one ever wants to get a call from somebody saying, hey, your dear friend is verbally abusing their kid and I need your help calling them in. But that's what friends are for, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There are, there, clearly this woman and her daughter have a lot of people who care about her and want to help. Yeah. And so just the really clear thing needs to be, you have started becoming abusive. It seems to come on a little bit more than once a week. And um, you need help and it needs to stop. You need to stop doing this in front of your child. That, that's the thing. Everything else is secondary to that. That's the thing that needs to be said. None of that means her childhood trauma is not real or important. None of this means that she is an irredeemable monster who is incapable of loving her child. None of it means she cannot get help. If this is really new, if this is really sudden onset, if this is out of character for her, as bewildering and distressing as that may be, it's also a good indicator that this is not a lifelong pattern for her and it will be possible to help her stop. Um, but it needs to start with real clarity. It's child abuse. She needs to stop it. Your your point is important here. In the essence, when you boil it down, there is no justification for abuse. Take away the first paragraph. All we know is that this young girl is in a risky situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you say that she could often be saying things to her abusers, particularly her still living father. Again, I I really feel for her. That sounds really bewildering, sad, upsetting, scary for you and for her. But she's also not talking to her abusers. And that's really important. She's talking potentially to, or at least in front of an 11-year-old girl. 
who hasn't done anything and does not deserve this and certainly does not deserve to have her intelligence used as a reason to um, prematurely end her childhood. Uh, you know, just like the idea of having your smartness as an 11-year-old girl wielded against you as evidence for you're smart enough to understand why you're being abused. And so it's okay that it keeps happening. That is not, um, don't do that. Don't do that, letter writer. I'm so sorry. Please write back and let us know how this goes. It will not be a fun conversation, but it needs to happen. It needs to happen more than once and it needs to happen with multiple people. This is not something that you should just try to handle within the family. Lots of people in her life should know that she is verbally abusing her child because that will make it harder for her to keep doing it. And that's the goal. Okay, this next one is short, sad, and straightforward. Subject is, should I end my friendship with my best friend over an inappropriate friendship he's having? Dear Prudence, my 35-year-old best friend has been engaged in an inappropriate friendship with a 17-year-old girl for the past year. He claims they're just friends. He harbors romantic feelings for her, but she has none for him. He agonizes over every interaction with her. He risks ruining his reputation and more over this, and he has shut down all attempts at interventions. I am a father, and I've told him if someone was acting the way he is towards my daughter, I would have called the police. He doesn't seem to care. His other friends and I have all approached him about this issue, but he won't listen. He's been my best friend for 10 years, though. What should I do? I mean. First of all, wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. And the answer is in there. He gave the answer. Yeah. It's what you do for what his you own would kid. Do about your own kid. Treat other people's kids like your own kid. Yes. We've discussed this at length. Yeah. Yes. Letter writer, I don't often encourage people who write into me to call the cops. You've got my permission. Call the goddamn cops. Tell the girl's parents. Contact someone at her school. Get people in her life involved. And call the fucking cops. This man is a goddamn predator. And he's been trying to like engine... He's been fucking grooming a 17-year-old for the past year, which means at least since she was 16. Everyone's tried to talk to him. And he's like, no, I'm going to... What the fuck is going on? You know what to do. Do it. It's... And also, I mean, ending my friendship. So you're just going to to look away. Just look away then. It's not going to yeah. do anything to change the situation. And it's also, like it's not your decision. Disagree. Do you, Would yeah. you be okay if someone else... Lo- and also, not only like, okay, what would you do for your own daughter? What if he s- suddenly turns his attentions on your daughter? Wouldn't you want someone to call the police or would you want them to contemplate ending their friendship with him? Yeah. And just, yeah, you know, if that's what it takes to think of 17-year-old girls as people, I guess. But like, Jesus, man, have some kind of uh, conception of the humanity of teenage girls that's not just either my daughter and not my daughter, you know? like As a father of daughters. You know, like this girl does not deserve to be fucking harassed by a lovelorn 35-year-old. You say that she has none for him, which means that he has at least forced her to say so on one occasion which really strongly suggests to me that he has been harassing her. Um, If you know this much about it, I guarantee you there's a lot more that you haven't seen. If all of his friends are this concerned, like this is going to be one of those things where like when the story comes out, people will be saying things like, what the fuck? Why didn't anyone do anything? If this much was public knowledge, you have the power to not do that. I mean, there'll still be the question of why have you waited for a year? But 
you cannot go back in time. So the best time to do something about it was a year ago. The second best time is now. Call the police, contact the girl's school, contact her parents, uh, call in the goddamn cavalry. Let let them decide what to do. It's not it's not your responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and absolutely ending your friendship with him is not. That's what you do with somebody who like doesn't listen to you when you say like you're always late and it really hurts my feelings. I wish you would at least try to let me know when you're running late. And they're like, can't. You know, that's like, hey, agree to disagree. We can't be friends. Sexually harassing a seventeen year old who doesn't want you to fucking badger them. <laughs> Again, just for all the times I don't say it on the show, call the goddamn cops. Defund the police, but call the cops. Absolutely. Yeah, don't, don't let that be the only thing you do. Also, assume the cops are not going to do anything unless you hand them like a smoking gun. So get her school's information and contact the guidance counselor. Try to find out who her parents are. Um, try to, I mean, don't contact this girl directly because the last thing that she needs is one of this like fucking creepy guy's friend's bothering her too. But yeah, find the adults in her life who are supposed to be looking out for her. Find the mandatory reporters in her life and get in touch with them. As many as possible, because as we know, whenever you hear about these stories in retrospect, someone reported it to someone, someone suggested this, someone told someone else, and it it often doesn't happen at all, but it takes Many times if it's going to happen, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, even that the question is being asked, it, it, this whole, it, the whole situation is very disturbing, as it always is. A teenage girl has been getting sexually harassed by a man in his 30s for over a year. Do a lot. Do a lot of things. Go overboard. Do too much. Call everybody. Um, sorry, not do too much. Don't, don't follow her around and ask her if she's okay. Um, but contact the adults in her life, contact her school, get her some help and make it incredibly clear to him after you have done so, by the way, don't give him a heads up. Don't warn him that you're going to do this so he can try to cover his tracks. Um, Make it really, really clear that what he has done is incredibly wrong and uh, that you will do everything in your power to make sure he can never do it again. Yes, absolutely. And, and, Talk to the school, talk to parents, talk to people other than these friends. Talk to your your wife if you have one or your husband. Talk to a lot of people because this has been, people know about this and this has been going on. And they only know what he tells them. Yeah. And after, by the way, you have done all of those things and like set in motion a series of, uh, you know, processes and investigations that will not be in your control, you know, work on the part of you that waited a year to write to me. I I don't know if you have known the entire year. It's clear that you've known long enough that you've m- tried more than once to intervene with him. You should, you know, when you find out that your friend in your 30s is sexually harassing a child, it's not, hey, stop it now. This is really serious. It's, I need to take this out of your hands. The intervention goes over your head. Um, he 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 has forfeited the right to s- quietly and privately see the error of his ways and knock it off. Uh, it, it needs to be public, and it needs there needs to be safeguards in place that he cannot be personally responsible for because he's already made it clear that he cannot be trusted around children. Yes. Oh man. Um, yeah, and then really work on that part of you that however long you let this one go, one year, eight months, six months, three months, whatever, 
that was wrong. You should not have waited that long. So work on that in the aftermath, but do the right thing now. Whew. Okay, Alexis, would you please read our last letter, which is nice because it's just about two stressed out people who want to help each other, you know? Mm. <sighs> I'm so tired. Of, I've been so emotional and up and down. And this is just like, I'm sleepy and I want to make pasta because he's nice. Yeah. I, I, I love this one because you can sort of um, imagine their lives in a way that we haven't been able to because everyone else has been sort of vague, but there's a lot to hold on to here. Um, that gives you, I, you almost feel like you know these, their characters, you know them. Um, so yes, it was, turnabout is fair play. My dear Prudence, my boyfriend and I have been together for just about a year now and things are going great. We both come from broken homes and have both dealt with similar trauma. We have also achieved independence, security, and are now well on the path towards professional success. It's fun and easy. We communicate well, and we are excitedly building a future together. Because of our similar backgrounds, he's been comfortable talking to me about some of the things that have happened to him. Sometimes after a particularly intimate conversation, he'll break out into hives. And once he had a mild panic attack. I encouraged him to find a therapist, and he has. But I can tell he's nervous, and he keeps making self-deprecating jokes about how he's going to be told something is monstrously wrong with him. It is not. I've also seen how talking about this stuff can have an intense effect on him. I know it's not always comfortable or easy to process, to work through bad memories. I have been there myself. I'm in the final year of a highly stressful competitive grad program, so I am also under quite a bit of stress. He's been enormously supportive during this time. He's also moving into a stressful few months at his job. Now he needs my support, but I'm worried I won't be able to return the favor. Things are piling up around his house, and I can tell he needs some help. This is also the first relationship I've had while in my grad program. Before him, I was fiercely committed to my studies and had no interest in dating. I want to be there for him and I want to be a good partner to him right now, but I really don't know how. Can you give me some good pointers about how to be supportive during a difficult time? Again, this was just really sweet to me. Yeah, they're doing the work. They're trying. It's a process. It's a it's a long process. Um, it sounds fairly early on for him, and it sounds like she might be further along because he's he's sort of, you know, he's making he's self conscious about it. He's making jokes. He thinks that the worry that we sort of all have when we start therapy, which is that they're going to tell you something is terribly wrong with you, and it, it sounds like they need to begin with just uh, you know he needs some time. Uh, yeah, I really think again, like you you have the good intentions, good communication and self-awareness that I think are like 90% of what you need to make it go well. So I, I think the best thing you can do is be really honest with him about, you know, I'm under a lot of stress. I know you're heading into stressful stuff at work as well as starting therapy. So time is limited around here. So schedule in and maybe it's half an hour a week, but like add to your calendars time specifically where, you know, he tells you how therapy is going and you two discuss it. But a part of like being an independent person, which they both very much want to do, it seems they want to, um, you know, they work hard. They're, they're trying to build a life by themselves and together for the last year. But a part of that is, you know, he needs to figure out how to clean his house. 
maybe that happens with a therapist. You know, if that's not being discussed in therapy as a part of this, maybe, you know, the suggestion should be that it is. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point too, because it's like the implication there is like, should I step in and do it for him? I'm worried that that will start a cascade of interventions. I don't know if this is a straight relationship. Usually people tell me if it's not one, but instead of making a lot of assumptions, I'll just flag the possibility of the fear of like, is this the well-intended beginning of, you know, I do all his housework for him and then we never really come back from that. And th- and maybe that was part of why I was always committed to my studies and didn't want to date because I knew that heterosexuality is a real time waster for women. Um, <laughs> um, all of which is just to say, if any of that's going on in the back of your mind, makes a ton of sense. Uh, cherish that part of yourself that loves and safeguards your independence and you know, don't be an asshole. But, you know, if there's a part of you that's like, I always want to make sure I don't just like preemptively do a guy's dishes because he's sad. Good. Don't do a guy's dishes because he's sad. He won't notice and he won't thank you for it. And then you'll just do his dishes for the rest of his life. I may be projecting a little bit here. It's fine. (laughs) I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I went to the UK to do a guy's dishes for him and it didn't get me what I wanted. So, you know. That's it was, I'm it's the from. opposite of what would serve her. I mean, it's very clear that she <laughs> she feels like if she... <laughs> we've all done that. We've all just put in a tremendous amount of effort doing something that we should not do for someone we really care about. But what is... I have to say, I like them both. I, there is something about I this letter. Too. I like them both. And I really like her. She's so self-aware. And the thing that I think she's she's struggling with, the beginning and the end of this letter, is she is from... She's She's dealt with traumatic experiences... She's, um, you know, achieved independence and she has this nice relationship. At the same time, she is well aware of, she's probably spent a lot of time thinking about maybe her entire childhood, the first 18 years of her life, thinking about the kind of life that she wants to build in order to protect herself and to be happy and et cetera, et cetera. I am also projecting things onto her. And she's struggling between that. You want family, you want closeness, you want a relationship. It would be very easy for her to, you know, at the same time to get lost in that and to lose lose herself. And I think there's a way for her to have it all. It's really true. She can find someone who will allow her to, you know, be in this space by herself and to study and accomplish things. And also, you know, the person doesn't have to be perfect, but to to work through it together. Oh, that's so helpful. And, you know, we can say all this and also just say, like, letter writer, by the way, if this is not your dynamic, if you are not a straight couple, like, just ignore this part, you know, just yeah. turn us off. You know, we're we're talking out of our, our necks um, or however the expression goes. But it is also true that he could be an amazing person and through no conscious fault of anyone's own, you know, it could be that you fear this dynamic of, like, he's great and yet... I have found myself in like the trap of heterosexuality without having intended to. And, you know, I'll just throw out that oftentimes in heterosexual relationships, the bar for a supportive man is very different from the bar for a supportive woman. The expectations can be really, really different. And so, again, I don't want to make assumptions about this guy, but if part of you feels like there's a part of me that preemptively notices when stuff is piling up around his house that thinks of ways that I could solve it and wants to solve it, even though there's another part of me that wants to prioritize my independence. And I'm terrified that I'm going to kneecap my own independence just because I am so used to uh, prioritizing a man's comfort. That would make sense. And I think that would be a great thing to maybe discuss with your own therapist. Um And I'll just say, like, it sounds like he's doing okay, you know? He's nervous. That's okay. 
I would be nervous too. He's he's doing something big and daunting. He occasionally makes self-deprecating jokes about how he's going to be told there's something horribly wrong with him. That's okay too. You know, you can be reassuring in that moment, but it's also okay to just make like a pressure-relieving, self-deprecating joke. You don't have to fix that for him. I would say if stuff piles up around his house, the most I would encourage you to do is say, how you doing? Uh, if you go through a really stressful time in your life and there's a couple months where you don't do the dishes very much, that's allowed, you know? Don't, don't assume that you have to fix it in order to bring it up. You can also just ask how he's doing and let him tell you. I, I also read this as a heterosexual relationship because it's true. Um, and at, at the same time, we could be totally wrong. I don't think it matters because there are just a few things that that jump out about this, which is, you know, the letter writer wants to help him in so many different ways um, and doesn't know how. And I think the letter writer has to have patience because yeah. the 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 way that this is phrased, I encourage him to find a therapist and he has, he's worried he's going to find something else. It sounds again, like they're just at the very beginnings. It's in the most nascent stage and these things take time. So if, if this person can just sort of bite his or her, you know, tongue for, for a little and let those things pile up and kind of let things happen and let him go through the process and let him learn how to deal with hives and panic attacks and however that's going to happen through like breathing or medication or whatever the journey there takes him. If you can do that, that's maybe the best way to be a supportive partner. Yeah. And that's helpful too, because I do want to, you know, now move out of the like heterosexuality and dishes problem because it's not universally applicable. And I also want to be able to speak to a different possible suite of relationship types. Um, and yeah, I think as you say, you know, the fact that the letter writer has been through some of what he is going through now and is a little further down the road. I think there's also that sort of like, oh, I know what helped me next. And so I want to just be able to like give that to you via osmosis because I don't want you to have, you know, I don't want you to have to take as long as I did. I want you to just get to where I am now because it's hard. I really get that. But, you know, I think you know, letter writer, that he he has to go through it himself. So, And that they don't come from, they both come from broken homes. They both dealt with similar trauma. It just, talking about that is great, but it doesn't, and you can find connections, but it doesn't mean that it was completely the same. So his path, is going to be different than hers and on a different timeline. Yeah. And you don't have to make up for it all now. I I think that's the other thing too, is oftentimes like when you've been together for a year, that's when you really start moving into some of the more like, you know, not that everybody spends the first year entirely on their best behavior, but you are at this point moving into a new phase of your relationship where you're kind of getting into more of the nitty gritty that you maybe held it a bit more of a remove during the first year. And so there's also that sense of like, well, are we going to build a future together? And if so, are we going to build a home together? And that makes me think about the sort of home that I grew up in. And I want to be able to, you know, heal my own broken home and his. And we need to be extra supportive and extra healthy with each other because of the pain we've already been through. And that's a really high bar to to try to force yourself to clear. So, you know, you sound like you're doing great. I think if you add to it just a realistic assessment of like, I love you. I can see that you're going through a lot. Um, And I also know we're both heading into really busy times of our own careers and and graduate studies. So I want to be honest about that up front because I want to be able to give you as much time as I can 
and I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. And by the way, letter writer, feel free not to say this in like vaguely gross corporate language. I'm sorry, you do not have to say overpromise and underdeliver to somebody that you're dating. That's a horrible thing to say, but you know what I mean. I think he would appreciate that so much more than no, no, no. I can do it. I'm gonna notice when your laundry's not getting done, and I'm gonna do it for you. Or I'm gonna see that you're about to break into hives, and I'm gonna hand you some Benadryl in advance. Or I'm gonna like give you my extra six months of therapeutic experience and just push that into your psyche. Like those are not things you have to do to be supportive. No, and and agree with you on everything. And just to say you know, congratulations, letter writer, on not only building this life, but then allowing yourself to have a relationship that and and sharing your life where clearly a part of your process was protecting that. It sounds like you have made major strides and and you're excited for him to do it too. And, and that will happen, you know, hopefully. Yeah. And you just both sound like really thoughtful, lovely, lovely people. I hope you both do great with your next busy year or season at work. And um, just, you know, I hope one of your friends comes over and does both your laundry sometime. Mm, That would be wonderful. You don't have to, but you know, good luck. Wow. What a day, huh? Yeah. This was for, you know, we don't see people, (laughs) we don't interact. So this was, Mm -hmm. this was a wonderful way to, you know, to sort of observe people in a way. Yes, it was. But I am glad that I got to see you um, I'm yeah. very, very glad that I got to see you. And I'm very, very glad that, um, I don't know, we got to remind people, like, don't forcibly sterilize your children just because uh. they have intellectual disabilities. And don't um, look the other way when your friend is preying on a teenage girl. This, uh, you wish you didn't have to remind people, but... Right. I I mean, that's the that's sort of the... You know this better than I do. I see this all the time. I talk about history of stories because they're the same stories over and over again. And in a way you get the same letters over and over again. And we're just trying our, you know, we've got to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Trying your best is great. Sometimes your best isn't good enough. Right. Uh, and you need to do somebody else's best. And Expertise. Um, yeah. Love it. Invite it in. Embrace yeah. it. Find but curated it. expertise, right? Because like with yes. eugenics, sometimes the experts were saying, do a lot of eugenics. It's good. Nothing new. So, Nothing like the hottest new thing. And Lobotomy was also very hot. Whew. No, thank you. Well, Alexis, thank you. Thank you for bringing the historical lens to our um, to our problems today. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. 
if, if part of the question is like, I'm worried that someday I'll look back and think like, oh, I really missed an opportunity to like stand up for my beliefs. You are at work. You are at work. You need this money. You did not invite these conversations. You are the only person in the office who's not part of a consensus. Absolutely do not jeopardize your ability to pay your bills because these people want to talk about politics. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.